Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe Naren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking about the cannabis withdrawal syndrome and how to manage patients who are undergoing cannabis withdrawal. Now, I find cannabis withdrawal quite fascinating, and we know that uh, the proportion of people who have cannabis withdrawal post regular cannabis usage can range from anywhere between 50 to 95%. And the symptoms typically emerge after one to, to three days of abstinence and kind of can peak between days two to six of abstinence. And the symptoms can actually be quite long lasting. So when we're talking about symptoms such as anger, aggression, irritability, anxiousness, nervousness, restlessness, these symptoms can last for a few days, but there have been cases where they've gone up to, to three weeks as well. And particularly sleep disturbances and difficulties uh, can, can last for, for quite a few weeks and sometimes even months post as well. And those are usually the highly prevalent symptoms of, of cannabis withdrawal. And this does not take into account things like cravings, which can, can be an, an indefinite symptom of, of the cannabis withdrawal symptom as well. And there's also the mood symptoms such as depressed mood, which can sometimes go for months post cessation of cannabis. So the constellation of symptoms one can get post cannabis withdrawal can be quite troubling to the patient and they can be quite long lasting. And trying to shepherd the patient through the withdrawal syndrome is something that us as general practitioners and addiction medicine specialists need to be adept at and something we need to provide reassurance for the patient because it is quite a distressing time for the patient going through the withdrawal syndrome. Would you agree with that, Fergal? Yeah, it's it's any withdrawal is distress is distressing, and I want to emphasize the point that previously there there was this idea that cannabis withdrawal didn't really exist, or that it wasn't a proper dependency. And I think I need to we, we all need to dispel that myth. Cannabis withdrawal is a well diagnosed set of criteria. Albeit there may not be specific dependency criteria such as the way there are in alcohol or, or opioids, but there are established criteria and the diagnosis of a, of a withdrawal syndrome is beyond doubt. It is distressing to patients and unless you help patients through that withdrawal, they are going to continue to use cannabis. I mean, I think cannabis like smoking needs to be seen in the context of a, a, of a persistent desire to avoid withdrawal effects, which is one of the drivers for ongoing use. So unless you treat withdrawal, you're going to have people who are still continuing to use cannabis. Now, the the DSM-5 criteria for withdrawal, I, I remember according to a mnemonic CATS uh, dig. So crave, C for craving, A for anxiety or anorexia, T for tremor, S for sweating, D for dreams, so vivid dreams, I for irritability, which reminds me about the anxiety, and then G for gastrointestinal side effects. But just because those are the DSM-5 criteria doesn't mean that, that, that they are the entire description of what cannabis withdrawal looks like. I mean, you've, you've alluded to a lot of these things. The timing is also um, Interesting. I, I always compare the timing of withdrawals to alcohol. I, I use that as my base time. So we can see that cannabis withdrawal doesn't really start as quickly as alcohol withdrawal. And it peaks, I think, round about the same time. The, the, the criteria, most of the criteria kind of uh, diminish round about the same time. But I think it's important to emphasize that the insomnia 
associated with uh, withdrawal from cannabis and the lack of sleep can last a month. You know, 30, 30 days. I've seen I've seen some people say thirty days. I've also seen other uh, texts suggest six weeks. Now, if and, and for me, that is one of the biggest obstacles to cannabis withdrawal management, and certainly in the community, is people come to me and say, oh, I want to get off cannabis. I say, well, why do you use cannabis? Well, it helps me sleep. And so how do you feel about not using cannabis to sleep? Oh, it'd be absolutely, it'd be a nightmare. I just couldn't sleep. So to actually help people um, sleep is one of the key things that you have to you have to do to actually help them through that prolonged side effect of insomnia that persists beyond withdrawal. And I think importantly, you need to understand the other point to make is unless you understand the drivers for use, you're never actually going to get them to the withdrawal and beyond. So what reasons do you, in your experience, do you have patients using cannabis for? A lot of people use cannabis for a lot of different things. Commonly sleep um, or insomnia is is a major issue. Anxiety, agitation, to help self-regulate poor mood is is the other common driver as well to help deal with life stresses. And I think uh, with a lot of substances that people use, uh, I think we've talked about this in previous episodes, it's to try and manage trauma, agitation, low distress tolerance. So it is a safety blanket. And when we take away the safety blanket, we do run the risk of the things that the patient is trying to manage or medicate in their own way rearing up and causing further distress. So we do need to manage uh, both the physiological withdrawal, but also the psychological aspect of the withdrawal. And I think you've talked about this earlier in the episode as well, about the withdrawal is so much more than just the substance. It's also the patient's perception of what they're going through and how we can support the patient go through this distressing time period as well. But Cannabis is one of those um, those drugs where, in particular, the sleep aspect and the anxiety aspect are usually the common reasons, in my experience, that people use cannabis. And then taking this away causes insomnia and anxiety uh, and mood disturbances to flare up. And one must also try and have a strategy in place to manage this because these are quite difficult things to manage in the community going forward in in, in the longer time period. But we do need to explain to the patient what we're trying to do and have a a safety plan as well as a management plan to deal with the patient's troubles and symptoms. I'm sure that's the approach you use as well, Fergal. Yeah. And the other big reason why people use cannabis, of course, is pain. So, you know, if you're using cannabis for pain and you've got to go through a withdrawal, I mean, that's very complicated as well. But yeah, I think think step one is to identify the driver for use. Step two, having identified those drivers, then you need to put in place management plans for each of those problems. And then and only step three, can you start talking about, well, if you want to go do a detox, uh, you know, if you want to actually get treated for your cannabis use disorder and go to a detox, deal with everything and then go, go, go for it. Which then brings us to the, the next point. I mean, how do you actually manage a, an acute inpatient detox of cannabis? What's, what's your way of doing it? So typically the, management of cannabis withdrawal is symptomatic management. And that is, we, uh, again, there's no rocket science behind this, we, we symptomatically manage what the patient has. <laughs> so usually what we would use is uh, simple analgesia if there's any aches or pains, antiemetics, 
If there's any gastrointestinal disturbances, we use medications to, to manage that, such as loperamide. And also to deal with the anxiety agitation, diazepam in a limited quantity over a short time period is, is not an unreasonable thing to do. My clinical practice is to use um, PRN diazepam, and this is usually in, in an inpatient setting, uh, to a maximum dose of about 30 milligrams a day. Um, in five to 10 milligram increments here or there to, to deal with patients' agitation and anxiety. Uh, I'm quite open with the patients that uh, this is time limited. So usually it'll be prescribed for the first four to five days of an inpatient withdrawal management. And then we, we wean and cease it. So by the time of discharge, which is usually, usually around day six or seven, the patient is not on any benzodiazepines and is discharged from the community with no benzodiazepines as well. Because as with any withdrawal management, we're here to manage the symptoms, but also not create a further use disorder with benzodiazepines. And there's no evidence that the chronic use of benzodiazepine is safe in this situation to manage anxiety or insomnia. And we all know uh, what long-term benzodiazepine usage can do. And I'm sure in future episodes of Cracking Addiction, when we're talking about benzodiazepine <laughs> use disorder, we will have a lot more to say about this. I'm but sure to summarize will. what I was saying, it's symptomatic management of the withdrawal symptoms and time-based utilization of benzodiazepines with a clear end target and cessation plan in place. And that's the medication management. Uh, there's also the other management options for cannabis withdrawal, which is contingency management, relapse prevention, um, identifying the psychosocial triggers for substance use and how to mitigate against that, um, increasing distress tolerance, and that's where the whole withdrawal management aspect of psychoeducation of the patient uh, comes into play. So that's, in a nutshell, what we do with cannabis withdrawal. Do you do anything different to that, yeah. Fergal? A few specific things I might do a little bit differently. But again, I, I want to reiterate what you've just said is there's no hard and fast rule about how to manage a cannabis withdrawal. But basically, it's symptomatic management, right? So there's no proven drug zaps cannabis use disorder and prevents it from ever happening again. There just isn't, right? So I think local units have their own local policies. I have in the past used olanzapine as purely as a sedative drug. So olanzapine is a second generation antipsychotic. I've used that purely to achieve sedation for five days. I have, if we're talking about the longer term use of, of medication to facilitate relapse prevention, I mean, going back to the drivers, I mean, insomnia, I'm very open-minded to using something like metazapine, a sedative antidepressant, uh, for a month or so to, to help people sleep. Because we, we know that part of the drivers for cannabis use is sleep, is, is sleep in disorder, insomnia. And we also know that insomnia can persist for weeks, if not months, after uh, effective treatment from the cannabis withdrawal. So you really do need to you, you need to help this pa the patient through that because the only in that phase the only thing that they think is going to help them sleep is more cannabis and so unless you deal with that during the relapse pre prevention phase you're on a hiding to nothing. The other thing that I want to bring up at this point is comorbid dependency and comorbid ingestion and, and we're not talking about you know heroin or alcohol I'm talking about tobacco and caffeine. A lot of people smoke cannabis. Uh, with tobacco. And really, in my experience, unless you separate out the tobacco use from the cannabis use, it's very difficult to come off two substances at the same time. 
So my first, when I'm trying to prepare patients for a, an admission to a, for, an, for a detox, I really do encourage them to, to separate out the cannabis use from the tobacco smoking. And I try and get them to basically vape or use a bong with pure cannabis in it rather than mixed in with joints with uh, tobacco. Because if you're trying to quit tobacco and cannabis, it's just not going to work. The other thing is that if people do have comorbid tobacco use and they, they want to come off the tobacco, then I also tell them to quit the caffeine because tobacco is full of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, PAHs, and PAHs are enzyme inducers. So PAHs induce the enzymes that eat caffeine. So a smoker has a high tolerance for large amounts of caffeine, and that's why you see people smoking and drinking coffee at the same time. But if you stop the smoking, then you suddenly stop the enzyme inhibition. Sorry, you, 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 stop, the, you stop the activity. And then very gradually, so, so they lose the ability to chew through the caffeine. Therefore, they're used to drinking the same amount of coffee. Therefore, they get, relatively speaking, uh, caffeine intoxication, which then causes them to experience jitteriness and anxiety. And so they misinterpret the symptoms of caffeine intoxication with the symptoms of tobacco withdrawal or cannabis withdrawal, which are also effectively the same in irritability and anxiety and tremor. So really, to, to, to give people the best go at getting off cannabis, you've got to separate out the tobacco and you've got to get rid of the caffeine as well. Uh, and then that then goes into relapse pre prevention. You know, how do you actually maintain someone drug-free, which is, again, a huge subject in and of itself. How does that sound to you? That sounds quite accurate, Fergal. And I think this is something that sometimes doctors in particular have difficulty managing because if we're looking over um, the episodes of Cracking Addiction we've done previously, we've talked about alcohol, opiates, and nicotine. So with alcohol, we have, and I'm talking about long-term management post the withdrawal time period. With alcohol, we have anti-craving agents. With opioids, we have opioid substitution therapy to prevent relapse. For nicotine, we have nicotine replacement therapy, as well as some of the tablets that we use to seize it, um, smoking. But when it comes to cannabis, there is no long-term pharmacological option that is guaranteed or proven to prevent relapse post the withdrawal management. It's really the psychosocial interventions that we are trying to implement and also symptomatically trying to treat the triggers for marijuana usage. So I've yeah. certainly seen instances where doctors or prescribers have used medications off-label or sometimes liberally been giving out benzodiazepines or hypnosedatives to treat insomnia, for example. And this just creates another problem and it just makes the cycle go around and round and round. So I think it's important to know what tools we have available to us and what our goals are. Withdrawal management is just that, withdrawal management. And some of the drugs we use in withdrawal management are time limited for safety reasons. And the evidence suggests in terms of relapse prevention, we need to educate and empower our patients try and symptomatically address and treat the issues that caused the cannabis use in the first place, but also know that there are no evidence-based long-term interventions for cannabis use by and of itself to address the cannabis use. We can treat insomnia through the measures you've mentioned already. Um, we can treat psychosocial distress by adequately addressing that, and maybe they will need a medication for anxiety or depression if there is a comorbid anxiety or depression. But as for cannabis use, uh, and I see it too often where 
we stop the cannabis and then we start another medication that sometimes becomes problematic. We just need to be realistic yeah. about what we're treating and how we're treating that. Does that sound fair to you, Fergal? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think the key message here is don't replace a cannabis use disorder with a benzodiazepine use disorder. That's the key thing. Absolutely. So in the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we've covered a lot about cannabis and cannabis withdrawal management and how to uh, symptomatically manage cannabis withdrawal, but also to try and identify the triggers for relapse, relapse prevention, and develop contingency management plans to, to guard against this. So it's been quite an interesting episode of Cracking Addiction. Thank you for your attention on this episode and bye for now.